millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. The biggest thing to remember about memory is that memory is based on attention. As Samuel Johnson, who's one of the great English writers over there, used to say, the art of memory is the art of attention. So paying attention to something just by itself is going to improve your chances of remembering. Welcome to the Unwind Podcast, a podcast for you to relax, drift off and allow your mind to wander. I'm your host, Poppy Jamie a best-selling author, entrepreneur, and researcher on a mission to share information that will help you live happier, healthier, and with more love, optimism, and wisdom. This podcast features interviews with well-known guests and world-leading experts about what it truly means to be human and what we can do to become the very best versions of ourselves. On The Unwind today, I have an extremely special guest, redefining what it means to be in the 80s. I'm speaking to the neuroscientist, neuropsychiatrist, a professor, a New York Times bestselling author. It's Dr. Richard Ristek. The phenomenal Dr. Richard has written 20 books on various aspects of the human brain. He's pioneered a conversation on the mind for nearly 40 years, and he's back with a new book about memory. Losing our memory is one of our worst fears, and what's surprising is how little we generally know about memory. Richard's book will blow your mind with what you'll learn about how our memory works and inspire you to train your memory to be better so it looks after you for longer. Would you mind sharing a piece of writing that resonates with you? Sure. Uh, We talk about the magic number seven, so I'm going to read from page 43 of my book. There are different types of memory, just as there are different types of dogs and cars. Poodle differs from a Great Dane, just as a Rolls Royce differs from a Prius. Each shares similarities to the other, but each also displays significant differences. Memory can also be divided into two categories, transient and long-term. If you remember something for only a few seconds that you've just seen, heard, or felt, we speak of transient sensory memory. Unless you make a deliberate attempt to retain this fleeting impression, thus created, transient memory, as the name implies, rapidly disappears. Memory for the taste of chocolate ice cream comes easily, but it's difficult to maintain it in memory for more than a few seconds. To summarize, short-term memories are those that we hold in our mind's eye through active rehearsal. I told you a telephone number to call on your cell phone, which is in the next room, you'll probably store it in your mind through active rehearsal. In order to retrieve the number as you move towards the next room, you'll find yourself repeating it over and over to yourself. If anything interrupts you on your journey, maybe even the ringing of the telephone you're coming to retrieve, the number is likely to be either mistakenly recalled with the numbers out of order or forgotten completely. When you're told the number, it took the form of short-term declarative memory a clear, conscious piece of information conveyed to you. 
this instance, the telephone number was only intended to be remembered for a short period of time until you got to the phone and dialed it. But if you want to include the number within the list of people you wish to stay in touch with, that episodic memory will have to be transferred into what we call semantic memory, namely general knowledge learned through repetition. If you dial the number frequently enough, it will be transferred into semantic memory. This transition may be, happen slowly, requiring multiple repetitions, unless the number is very important to you or is accompanied by some emotion. It's such a wonderful piece you chose because I think it really gives a glimmer of your brilliant book. And I think what I found so surprising is how little we know about memory, and yet it is the foundation for everything. Well, it is. We really are our memory. You know, when we, if you get in a dark room and there's no lights and there's no sounds, what are you except your experience of memory, your ability to think back to things, uh, to be able to look forward to things? There's a thing called future memory, which sounds like a paradox, but Lewis Carroll wrote about it. He said it's a poor kind of memory that only thinks backwards. So a future memory is when I describe to you where we're going to go to a cocktail party and we're going to meet the prime minister and we're going to meet this one we're going to meet that one it'll really be fun do you want to go you say sure but what you're doing you're sort of creating a little scenario in your mind of what it's probably going to be like to be there and meet these various people so that's a future memory now people who have sad illnesses like alzheimer's they're not able to create a future memory if you say to them, well, what did you do today? Well, I did the following. Well, what do you think tomorrow will be like? And even if tomorrow is just like today, they won't be able to imagine it. What do you think the benefit is of having a strong ability for future memory? In your book, you share how future memory creates an imprint in our past memory. And I was wondering... How does this make us excel as humans? Memory links quite a bit with imagination. You know, we remember things as part of our imagination. If you're a novelist, you're going to remember things for the purpose of putting it into a creative product that you're working on now. And you also may use future memory by trying to, well, that's what not writing a novel is, using future memory to imagine what it would be like and make it believable. Do you think then people who've got a really overpronounced future memory that can lead to delusional thinking because you you can live so much in your imagination and it's so real? Well, it can, and of course, well, what usually happens with delusions, uh, they often fill the space for something that can't be remembered. So you can, there's a thing called confabulation. Confabulation is a process whereby a person who can't remember and has a very severe memory difficulty, uh, they will make things up, and they're very suggestible. So if you say to them, oh, didn't I see you in Harrods yesterday, even though they were anywhere near Harrods, they'll say, oh, yeah, I was down there. Then you say, well, I saw you buying a shirt, weren't you? Yeah, oh, yeah, I got a shirt. What color was it? Blue. And I got a red tie to go with it. Well, this is the kind of thing that goes along with that's a, you say, was this person delusional? That's not quite the word to use. What mm. they're saying is not true, but to the extent that they are filling up their memory gap. So it sounds like a delusion. It is a kind of delusion, but it's based on memory problems. So not just that they're making up something for no, for no reason. So it's actually not their fault. 
No, it's not their fault. It certainly is deliberate. It's not like uh, making up things that don't exist. That's mm. not the reason. It's these people who have uh, memory problems. Because in the pop cultural domain right now, a lot of psychologists or therapists encourage people to uh, create visualizations for what they want to happen in their future life. When I was reading your book, I thought, oh, that's really interesting because, you know, people do say that the brain can't tell between imagination and reality. Is that true? And how is that true? And what are your thoughts on how helpful it is to visualize what you want to come true in the future? Well, of course, that's the key. You have to be able to visualize what it is you want. You have to where you are, project yourself into future memory, project yourself into something that does not exist as yet. And we take this for granted. But it's not something to be taken for granted. Animals, for most cases, are not able to imagine a future except in a very limited way. If they get bitten or get uh, burned or something in a situation, then yes, they will avoid that situation. But they don't remember as, as much as, certainly not as much as we do, in terms of the particular events and the particular things that occur. You're saying it is actually true that the brain can't tell between an imagined situation and actually a real situation. So if we imagine trauma is the foundation for mental health problems, but could you reimagine your past to remove so much of the post-traumatic behavior that is so unhelpful for people? Well, you can revise your past and you can uh, sometimes do it in ways that are unrealistic. But each time we bring forth a memory, I say to you, for instance, well, remember when you graduated from high school, try to remember that evening. Well, when you bring that memory forth, at a certain point, you then you'll start talking about other things and that memory will recede into the brain. It's very subtly altered mm. because the chemicals are very different that then reformulate it into your brain. So that's what explains why we remember things differently with time going on. And we may be less accurate and not even aware, aware of ourselves. Secondly, one person can influence another person's memory, and then they tend to integrate that information into uh, what they're going to remember in the future. They're aware of this in courtrooms called, you know, leading the witness, sort of uh, suggesting something that wasn't true. Did the car stop at the red light or not? Well, there wasn't a signal there. There was a stop sign. So the correct answer would be, well, it stopped at the stop sign. So you have to correct it. You know, there's also this thing called gaslighting where one person will try to uh, invade another's psychic space and plant a memory which really isn't true. This is also something that happens as a nation. We have national memories. Towards the later part of my book, we talk about uh, memory wars and uh, memory uh, differences. Uh, each one of our nations tries to have us remember things in a different way. It's a major reconfiguration going on now in the United States. There's certain people trying to change how they think about uh, the forming of the country and who was important and who wasn't. But that's working on societal memory, memory history, if you will. I think it is fascinating how faulty our memory is. And I think this is a very new concept for people because arguments, so many arguments are started because two people are certain that their recall of events is the truthful one. It's correct. 
I mentioned in my book, it was a sad experience that my sister died while I was writing it. And one of the pleasures we both had in our later years is to get together and remember things that happened to us as children. We both noticed that certain times one would correct the other and say, no, that's not exactly where it was. It in Philadelphia, it was in New York that happened. And of course, it was interesting because once you heard the actual thing, then you would remember it correctly. What is the relationship between identity and memory? Well, memory gives us our identity. We have our sense of identity based on our memories. So that's why I wrote this book. You want to build your memory. It's the one part of your brain that you want to build up. Because I have never encountered anybody who had a superpower memory who was demented. So um, if you keep your memory going and keep it fresh and, and test it, and I have methods in the book to do this, you don't have to join any clubs, you don't have to go to any gyms, you don't have to hire any trainers. You can do it all yourself. So you are advocate for these memory games that you can play online or just play with friends? Uh, yes, I, I think 20 questions is the best game. It's interesting because if you and I are playing 20 questions and I've got in mind a certain thing, you've got to get what that is by mm. asking me 20 different questions. You've got to remember all of the different questions you've already asked as you move on up and what my answers were. On the same token, I know what the object is that I'm trying to keep from you in terms of memory, but I have to remember all your questions. I have to answer them honestly. I can't make up a lie. In fact, if the thing turns up later and you say, we know you, I asked you on the third question and you told me no and the answer should have been yes, well, then you win. It's fun on both sides because you can change the identity. You could be the questioner or you could be the one who has the secret. On a lifestyle and diet perspective, how can that influence memory for better or for worse? Well, diet is among five or six other factors that are thought to have a good effect on maintaining memory and avoiding Alzheimer's dementia. There's diet, there's exercise, there's knowledge, what we call cognitive reserve. And all of them contribute towards a good memory, but each one by itself is not sufficient. So um, diet, the Mediterranean diet, is very close to what is required. I think the the take-home message on that is that any diet that is recommended by cardiologists and heart specialists is good for the heart, is going to be good for the brain. We've had a very revolutionary change on our ideas toward caffeine, coffee, and tea. Now, if you're a person who has a severe hypertension, I mean like severe, then don't listen to what I'm going to say now. But if you don't have that, you can drink three or four or five cups of coffee or tea daily. And there's indications that it does improve cognition. Wow. Yeah. So it's it's there showing you that you must try to uh, use caffeine judiciously, but you don't have to be so cautious about it as we thought recently, until recently, about one cup of coffee in the morning and that's it. No. You want to drink three or four cups of coffee or tea during the day, go ahead. Well, this is fantastic for every coffee drinker out there. We've got Dr. Richard confirming that it is okay to have four to five cups. (laughs) You open the book with a bunch of questions that really help you see that losing some memory is not something that we need to worry about. So I'd love to talk about why isn't memory loss always worrying? And what's the difference between 
memory loss and active forgetting, which is another favorite term of mine. Well, the biggest thing to remember about memory is that memory is based on attention. As Samuel Johnson, who's one of the great English writers over there, used to say, the art of memory is the art of attention. So paying attention to something just by itself is going to improve your chances of remembering. What's an example of attaching attention and memory and what happens to memory when you don't have attention on something? Because I think that's quite interesting. All right. Well, we talked about the cocktail party earlier. We meet somebody at a cocktail party. We're still thinking about something that happened at work as we got there. And, you know, we're still kind of ruminating about it. When you meet this person, you hear their name and you shake hands and whatever. But uh, then later on, you're going home with your spouse. And you say, you know, I met this individual. Now I can't remember their name. Well, you never really listened to the name or pay attention to it. So when you focus on somebody and repeat their name, shake their hands and look them in the eye, your likelihood is you are going to remember the name. You can try it. It really works. The more attention you give to something, the easier it is to remember. Let me give you an example, a specific example from my own life. My wife has a dog called a skipper. I may not be pronouncing it right for those that speak German, but it's a skipper key. It's a Belgian barge dog, cute little dog. But I had the hardest time remembering the name of the skipper key. And I would be out walking with the dog and people would say, oh, that's a cute dog. What kind is it? Well, you look like a moron. You can't say, well, uh, well, I can't really remember. It's my wife's dog. And they said, well, you can't even remember now. So that I remember, I thought of a little boat, tiny boat, with a giant bearded captain in there holding a key, skipper key. So now it comes to me as easy as can be because I see that picture. So converting things into pictures is always going to help memory. Remember, no one ever had to teach us how to see things. We had to learn how to read. We had to learn how to write. But looking at things is elemental. So what we want to do is go back to that elemental thing and take complicated words and phrases and turn them into pictures. Some of you that have been following me for a while now may know how much time I spend on my feet. I'm obsessed with walking. It truly makes me feel happier. But last year, I started to suffer from some foot pain and I just couldn't work out what I was doing wrong. Turns out, my shoes were the problem. I never really gave a second thought to what I should be wearing on my feet until I was told I was wearing shoes with no support. This is when I started doing my research and discovered Vivo Barefoot. After my first run in my Primus lights, there was no turning back. My feet are less constricted and they offer a barefoot design that fits firmly around my feet and makes them feel so much stronger. The feeling of the ground beneath your feet also connects you to the world around you. So you really get that grounding feeling. They are almost like therapeutic shoes. They are incredibly relaxing to wear. Vivo Barefoot are offering a 100-day free trial on their footwear, and you can purchase yours today with an exclusive 15% off for our listeners when you visit www.vivobarefoot.com slash unwind. Check out the link in the show notes. What you know about memory, for example, that no one taught us how to see, we were able to do that, it's so foundational, but knowing what you do how do you think children should be educated? 
Well, one of the things you don't want to do is use the electronics as the main source. What you want to do is use the memory and then use the electronics to check on the memory and strengthen the memory. For instance, if you're going to the grocery store or the supermarket and you have eight or nine different things, when you get there, you don't pull out the list and look at it and go from aisle to aisle. That's what you're doing then is you're just you know, reading a list. Your brain isn't being stimulated. But you're trying to remember all the things you can. And only when you're checking out, you say, well, I hope I didn't forget anything. Let me look at my list. And you look. That's foremost. So that is like the students, as you asked about, is to use uh, their cell phones and things like that as backup, not as a, or GPS is another example. Don't use the GPS. Drive around and use the GPS to check you. In other words, if you're coming ahead and you think you're going to turn right, but you're not sure, you can wait for the GPS to say turn right, but you've already decided whether or not you think it's the right hand turn. Do you think then, or do you predict, that potentially the rise in Alzheimer's and Parkinson's is actually because there are more and more generations being tech native that they re- so rely on their tech devices that we are degrading our memory from such a young age that obviously after a while if it's not being used you know if you don't use it you lose it well i think yeah exactly tech should be augmentative not replacing your own memory it should augment let's see how many other things i can come up with so that uh, first of all decide if you're a you know, learn better from reading or from listening if you learn better from reading, then lists are for you. If you learn better from listening, then dictates the grocery list into your cell phone. And later on, listen to it. And then go to the store to get what you want. Now, I can give you a method right away of how to do this. It sounds like, how would you ever remember 10 objects? I mentioned about it in the book. Everybody walks some point or other during the day a regular walk whether it's to work, whether you come home from work and take a little walk around their neighborhood. You select 10 places, starting with your place of residence, the home or apartment building. You memorize it in your mind, make a picture of it. In fact, take a cell photo of it so you can study it in detail. So you reach to the point where you can see this particular building where you live. Then next, you pick a second and a third and a fourth. I have my house nearby the library a uh, coffee shop, a liquor store. So what I do, all the 10 objects that I want to remember, I put them in those sites, and then Mm. I take the walk. So if the first item I want to remember is milk, and the second is, let's say, bread and eight others, well, the picture of my house, it may show milk coming up the chimney and flowing into the street so they know I need milk. And when I get to the library, instead of books, I see loaves of bread on the shelves. I know I don't need bread. Then I go on to the third thing and fourth thing. Again, it's nothing to it. And people say, well, it must take an awful long time. It's The big thing is to pick the 10 sites that are so common to you that you see them every day. And then make the picture, the mental picture. And that'll be your, with the place setting for what you're going to put on it, for what you're trying to remember. I love how simple these little games that you share in the book are because, you know, something like that, doing that in the morning, as you said, it's brain medicine in helping protect 
against dementia for many years and decades. It's it's just brilliant and it's fun at the same time. You talk about how there's tension between instinct and memory. And so as a memory scientist, do you believe instinct even exists? The idea of, oh, well, my instinct told me that that person was to be untrusted or my instinct said, yes, go for the opportunity. How do you understand that? Yeah, I do. It's a very good question. It's a question that requires a careful interest. We all know more than we can say. That's another famous phrase. We, we know things that we can't put into words simply because they're really not something that could be explicated or that can be explained. So a lot of times the guilt, the gut instinct or the feeling of, oh, I, don't, I can't give you a reason for it, but I think this is what you should do. Or I can't give you a reason, but I don't think you should trust that guy. It's this sort of thing. Mm. You don't want to use it and, and just, you don't want to have your whole reasoning process taken over by that because you could be wrong. We've all had situations where we've been dead wrong and we've made apologies to people about things that we said or didn't say. So, but there are occasions when it really is helpful and, and it does come in. Let's put it this way. If you are taking a test and I ask you a question, either know the answer or you don't. If you don't know it, you just say, oh, I don't know. But if I give you the question with five possible answers, which is the most common way they do it in schools, you can look at it and you're going to say, oh, it's that. So it's a difference between recognition memory, you pick it out of five, or repetition memory, where you, as soon as you hear the question, you've got the answer. Uh, so that's a very different kind of thing. So what you're asking me about is on many occasions, somebody knows something, but they can't really tell you why or how. And they just make a recommendation to, to take an action. So getting back to the five questions, if you have one of them that you think is right, but you're not sure, that's the one to pick. Because And don't change your mind. Because what's happened there is the brain has looked at it, and it uh, can't say for sure, but it kind of feels that's the answer. That's, that's why they say once you select an answer, don't change it. Very interesting. One thing that struck me while I was reading uh, was the fact that if you really understand how memory works, and we kind of touched upon this at the beginning, you actually share a lot of tools people could use to manipulate people, as you said, like, you know, suggestion, and also how vulnerable our memory is. What are your thoughts on that? Well, we're open to, as I said earlier, to our memory manipulated and having our memory influenced by things that we don't know are going on and we don't realize are going on. So I would say as a principle, it's important to correct things that are not correct. Because if you, if you let it slip by, you may well remember it the way the other person just said it. I gave the example of a car mm. stopping at a flash, or what you call it in England, but uh, call them red lights here, fly, you know, as opposed to a stop sign, which is just a sign that says stop. It's very important. A red light and a stop sign are really saying the same thing, bring your vehicle to a halt, but they're quite different things. Now, in most cases, it doesn't really make that much difference, which it is, but you want to remember how things really work. But as we know, memory is faulty. So how do we even know that we've got the correct recollection? Yes, it is faulty. And uh, my faulty, my memory could be faulty or yours good if we're trying to remember something that we experienced or saw together. 
we people don't even identical twins don't experience the same thing. Mm. I mean, they, you know, people say, "Well, how can identical twins differ in their memory of what happened at a uh, baptism or something?" Well, you'd say, "Well, because they they were there together, looking at the baby being baptized, but they saw different things. They were looking at different things. How people were dressed. One was looking how people were dressed. Other was looking for toys. Whatever, all that kind of thing." So they remember it differently. So memory is so getting back to the identity. What people identify, what people remember, tells you what their personality is like, what their identity is. I found the association game really interesting. Why is that a useful game to play in understanding personality? It's an idea of putting down certain words and seeing what they link to, what they lead to, to link them with. I use it as a method of writing essays, in some cases even books, see what thing links up with what else, what comes to mind. And that, of course, is drawing on your semantic memory, the memory which you haven't put into words. You're putting it into words when you write it down and the linkage. And, of course, it's all these different things are linking because of your, the, the linkage center is your brain. You're linking it together. Somebody else may not link it up together because they may have different interests and different knowledge. The knowledge base, again, the more you know, the more you can uh, link things together and the more things you'll remember. What are your thoughts on hypnotherapy or regression where you, if anyone listening, you go, your a therapist takes you into a meditative state and then asks you about your past and you can start recalling memories from a very young age. Do you believe that those sorts of recalls in these therapeutic settings, what are they? Is that an imagination or do you truly think that we are recalling very early age memories that we've forgotten? Well, the hypnotherapy, of course, is a altered state. It's not your normal state. So there are things that are going to come to mind that wouldn't ordinarily come to mind. It depends on the uh, motive of the one who is doing the regression. Mm. Is it for the purpose of, of releasing neutral memories, whatever may come to, or is it by someone who's interrogating a child as to whether or not they were ever abused? And that, of course, is a very heavily loaded situation in which the even bringing the topic up is a form of suggestion. Right. That's why the, the, we had a whole thing in the United States back in the, I guess, the 80s or 90s, where there was all this hypnotherapy and hypno uh, evidence, so to speak, of, of children making claims that were later proven to be impossible because they weren't anywhere near the person that was accused, that type of thing. I mean, yeah, there's a different thing in the, and I think there, there's valuable things can come from. It's already been shown that factual materials, things you can, double check mm. they have listed this like what was the license plate like can you remember the license plate no i don't remember the license plate. i remember the state but then later in hypnosis they may give the license plate because it was wow. there knowing more than we can say what things should everybody be very aware of what sort of things degrade our memory and what are the things that we should stay clear of or avoid well physical things i mean whether alcohol drugs even including marijuana, there's you now studies showing that this stuff is can be toxic to the brain. There's a reconstruction of the whole thing about whether or not social drinking, a little bit of drinking, is good for the brain. And they bring up studies 
in which they have somebody who's a teetotaler or doesn't drink, and compare them with somebody who drinks one or two drinks a week, and they find that the one who doesn't drink has more evidence of uh, cognitive decline than the social drinker. The problem with that kind of a study is many times the teetotaler is somebody who used to be a heavy drinker, and that's why they stopped, because spouses and other people said, you know, you drink too much, so then they just quit completely. But they still have the consequences of heavy drinking in their past, which will show up in the present and the future, greater than the small drinker barely drinks at all. So it's very tricky. What is the relationship between memory and sleep? Well, sleep, if two students hear the same lecture and one of them goes to the study hall and uh, starts reading his notes and the other one goes back to the dorm, reads his notes and takes a short nap, he will remember, he or she will remember much better than the one who didn't take a nap. So nap enhances memory up to a point. You don't want to be in bed, slogged in bed for the next two hours. It's just we're talking about a brief mile. No, no, it's shown to be helpful. Interesting. So if you really focus on getting a good night's sleep every single night, then the chances are you are also supporting your memory. Yes, and I, I'm a big believer in naps, and they best come after lunch because then that that's what siestas are all about because the brain is best suited at that point to take a nap. And then you can tell whether or not you've had the right lengthy nap because if you wake up feeling slogged and kind of, you know, really groggy and all out of humor and everything, you've slept too long. If you wake up feeling really invigorated and so the light looks brighter, there's more things to do than you realize that good things that you are happy about, then the nap is on its purpose. What is the best advice you've ever been given? And I'm sure there are so many things to share because you've had such an amazing life. But what stands out to you? It was my mother that told me, see yourself as others see you and see others as they see themselves. And I've applied that all my life. And it's really very, very helpful because the way people, the way you see people is not the way they see themselves. That's the best advice I've ever had. That's really interesting. How do you think that has helped you? Well, it's helped me in as much as that I'm very cautious about projecting my feelings about another person and feeling that they probably see themselves as I see them. So they're not. In the same token, when I'm thinking that I'm on, so to speak, I may think that uh, other people may not think so. So you just have to have a little humility. That's really, really lovely. Thank you. I've really enjoyed speaking with you, Dr. Richard. Where is the best place for people to find your book? And is there a place for people to ask questions? Um, if so, would love to hear that. Well, the book is on, uh, you can get that, I guess, over at Amazon over there. And uh, I am a big believer in the local bookstores. So I would say if you can get it in your neighborhood bookstore, that would be the best. If there's any question that, that comes up that somebody wants to send me, uh, uh, they could send it to uh, neurology.associates.office at gmail.com. Well, thank you so much. This has been brilliant. We'll put the, everything in the show notes. Well, well, thank you. Thank you. 
thank you so much for listening. And if you enjoyed today, please hit subscribe and leave a comment because this helps the podcast so much. I'd be endlessly grateful if you wouldn't mind doing so. My mental health book, Happy Not Perfect, is available to order now. The book teaches you how to be a flexible thinker, a skill that helps you navigate any challenge that might come your way, helps you manage emotions, and helps you thrive to be the bendiest version of yourself. Until next time, I love hearing from you, so do shoot me a message on Instagram, send me a DM with any of your thoughts. Stay safe and well. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.